Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about... Yes, you guessed it, it's Brexit. We talk about statues. And whether there should be more women in Parliament Square, or who else we might have. Stephen, do we have to talk about Brexit? Yes, I'm afraid we do. Not only do we have to talk about Brexit this week, but it is going to come back. Brexit is going to become the regular thing we talk about every week again. And I know but I, I so not to don't want it to quite be. so full of glee at this, but if this makes any sense, I think we've kind of had three phases of Brexit. There was the pre-referendum mendacious Brexit, you know, the Turks are coming, Brexit will be great, France will pay for it. There was the kind of gritty procedural you know, here's how an Article 50 process works, here's how our withdrawal agreement works, here's how citizens' rights and grandfathering and withdrawal clauses work. And then after the agreement in principle in December, we entered what I think of as a magical realist phase, right? You know, when is a border not a border? Can you... Why have, has everyone got the same name? Yeah. Can you have customs checks without customs checks kind of things? You know, maybe having a hard border on the island of Ireland wouldn't be so bad. You know, kind of that sort of kind of abstract magical thinking phase. Now kind of the problem is that that phase is about to hit two immovable facts of the Brexit debate. Immovable fact one is you cannot leave the customs union and the regulatory orbit of the EU, particularly on goods, agriculture, and a third thing, which I'm afraid embarrassingly has escaped me. Cheese. Cheese. Yeah, let's say cheese. Who's going to know? You cannot leave that regulatory orbit and leave the customs union and not have physical infrastructure on the island of Ireland or in the Irish Sea. So that's kind of fact one. Fact two is that because of the inconclusive election result, you have a situation in which a majority of MPs do not want to leave the customs union. A majority of Conservative MPs, however, do want to leave the customs union, and the government's position is that they are in favour of it. Now, I cannot work out how you reconcile Parliament, reality. Well, I can see how you reconcile Parliament and reality. I can see how you can reconcile Conservative MPs and reality, but you cannot reconcile those two people with Ireland's asks on the border, maintenance of an open border, and therefore getting a deal at the end of the Brexit process. And what's going to happen this week is kind of sort of the trailer for that film, as it were. There's a meaningless vote on customs union participation, which has been triggered by select committee chairs. This is not binding. The government has told MPs not to turn up. Plenty of Labour MPs have basically been happily announcing that they have no intention of going either because it's a one-line whip for them and what's the point, basically? It has no effect. However, this vote, and because it's so close to the local elections, it makes it incredibly hard for Tory MPs to rock the boat on this one. However, the fact that even given the sort of massive stick of you can't, upset the apple cart this close to local elections the government is going to have to ask its MPs to abstain on the vote is a indication of the kind of bigger earthquake still to come so it is I think exciting even if you are not uh, a Brexit person. I might be more excited this weekend I'm going to Derry and I'm going to go and look at the border I'm going to go and see what you know whatever bits of it are currently remaining if any of our listeners are in Derry and would like to show me a good time on Saturday night I mean no not that doesn't that sounds pervy doesn't it I mean just take me to a pub that's all um, I'm asking that's I mean, literally that, the end of what I mean, I'm that asking. was slightly better than what you started with <laughs> but it did still um and the, the, the thing to look out for is any dual language sign or yeah or indeed obviously the Derry London Derry thing is 
yeah, that you will see at least one that has been vandalized, right? So there is a belief, I do not know if it is, you know, true or fair or accurate, but there is a belief among Brussels correspondents. I hear it occasionally from commission officials, and I hear it an awful lot in Whitehall, that when push comes to shove, the EU 26 will basically say, look, we did try our hardest to prevent there being physical infrastructure, but we can't get the British government to see sense. We are going to sign this agreement because of the uh, important guarantees it has on security, X, yeah, X, Y, Z. I don't know if that is the case, right? There are many reasons why that could turn out not to be the case. And you actually end up in a situation where the EU27 does what he has done consistently so far through the process and goes, actually, we are sticking with Ireland because they are a member of mm. the EU. However, let's say that that doesn't happen. I think Brexiteers don't seem to have clocked that the presence of border infrastructure will very rapidly become an active political running store on the island of Ireland. This is what I think is really fascinating about this. You know the exact type of Tory MP who would get grumpy about like the X Factor and we and all the people going on Britain's Got Talent and those people who go on Britain's Got Talent and cry like, the thing is ever since I was 14 I've wanted to be a singer, like I just really, really want it and then they're not any good at singing. This is how I feel about the Brexit border thing. It's like, just because you really, really want it to be okay, but you have no mechanism for delivering it being okay, that doesn't count. But they are like the person with the dog on Britain's Got Talent whose dog is talentless. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I too am starting to struggle to write informatively and not just snappishly about it. For That's it- the problem with politics coverage. When you begin, when you know you get the indefinite, and it happens too, I think it happens when Jeremy Corbyn, to my mind, plays dumb on some issues, and you think, I don't think you believe this. I, you, know, you know I know that you don't think I believe this, and yet you're kind of just trying to tell me that this is the way that reality is. When you... Yeah, and that's how, it, and it does make you write in that particularly kind of grumpy kind of way because you don't think you're having a disagreement with someone. You think somebody is fundamentally kind of lying to you. Yeah, and this thing is, I do feel gaslighted and yanked around on the border stuff, right? Partly because if you believe that the benefits of Brexit are an independent trade policy, what is the successful independent trade policy which doesn't involve? wanting to do customs checks at some point what is the competitive advantage of your independent trade policy if you're saying to everyone you trade oh so there's that border over there we have no clue what goes over it want to sign a deal with us yeah it is just nonsense right it is a crazy idea. But the really bad, difficult thing about when stuff is just nonsense is that when somebody, this is a kind of Trump uh, tactic, right? Somebody says something that is just wrong and then everybody reacts against it and goes, but you're wrong. And then, I mean, and then they go, oh, it's groupthink or whatever. You're kind of, and I think you nailed this as well, is that is that there's a kind of feeling that with BBC Balance particularly, right? If someone says something that is flat out, swivel-eyed, bonkers, crazy, and someone says the truth then actually the balancing is sort of like, well, like, let's give half the ground to bonkers with a light crazy. And that's kind of what I feel is happening with some of the Brexit stuff is that people are just insisting that black is white. And then if you and then and then you have to compromise on it being grey. Yeah, no. And I think that is, um, it's kind of what I keep meaning to write an article about it. But I am then aware that it's actually not a column. It's a paragraph. <laughs> it's just a grumpy. Yeah. It's a good tweet. Though. Now what, you've got 208 yeah. characters, you could really fill your boots on that. On what I think of as sort of dumb centrism which Mm. seems to believe that virtue exists in this sort of weird equidistant point and just like well no i'm into a centrism which goes you're right about the economy you're right about i don't know decriminalizing marijuana yeah 
yeah, just right. Anyway, yeah. anyway yeah. I'm up Whereas, for picking a pol- like a, a portfolio of policies that does not is not coherently along the traditional left right class or economic lines, and then going that's actually what I believe. Like here is a thing, a, a program of government I can put together that most of the country would be quite happy with. Like, yeah, not not a lot of people are going to love, 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 but like here is where you know most people can kind of agree that's okay. They're okay with that happening. But yeah, not this kind of like one side says that the cuts choke off demand, the other says that their plan is better. Maybe we should cut. Half as much. Just like, no, no, that's that is not how policy merit or anything works. I mean, it is why I was speaking to someone uh, from around the Corbyn in a circle where I said, "Look, why have you really not bothered to do any pitch rolling for what is a good night in the local elections?" And they said, basically, "Well, look, last time the local elections weren't great. We kind of went, oh, maybe they're actually quite good." And the broadcasters basically went, "Oh, yeah, maybe." The truth is somewhere between these aren't great. They're just like, there is no, because ultimately the way local elections will be covered is that like the side which does badly, in this case the Conservatives, makes an absurd claim about how it's actually gone well. The side which <laughs> says it's done well, says a correct and truthful claim that it has gone, yeah. actually gone well. And the verdict is local election results mixed. There is therefore no point. And it's one of those things where I kind of thought, a, I think that's true, but God, it's also a really depressing reflection on how we cover politics. It is, and I think there's that real problem with the the idea that it's more sophi- like nuance is more sophisticated. And in most cases, you know what, nuance is more sophisticated and things are more complicated than they seem. But some things just don't require finessing. I think it's definitely been a big problem in covering Trump is that he will just say, we should build a wall and keep out the Mexicans. And actually, if you want to try and look like you have to go no let's let's talk seriously about whether or not this is a really good like and actually it's very popular so like maybe we should instead of actually the truth which is this is a terrible policy there is no way to pay for this policy it won't solve any of the things you want to do and it's a massive dog whistle like but that's kind of that's unnuanced you can't say that and i think there's a real terror in political coverage of of being it's, it's almost kind of being kind of vulnerable right in being in in, in just saying no nah, that's wrong yeah. that's wrong or that's right and and therefore you can get kind of attacked for it in the same way i think it's modern culture it's quite hard to just say that i really love something here's why i love it because someone might come in and then say well it's very that's very basic of you whereas if you're kind of just like wryly dismissive of everything then you're never going to kind of get caught out yeah and that afflicts politics coverage to a huge extent i think but i'm very excited about talking about the customs union for several more months so thank you for bringing me that Stephen. So we've got a big piece in the magazine this week by Lem McCluskey, the boss of Unite, which is Britain's biggest trade union, right? I'm not. There's not another secret trade ah, union. So this is a fun. Uh, is in, it? In, this is a fun to me, and hopefully at least one of our listeners um, debate, right? Because so Unite would say yes. Some people in Unison and the GMB would get a bit sniffy because mm-hmm. they would say, "Well, okay, yeah, sure. If you include retirement, okay. it's a bit like." It is an opinion held fairly or unfairly in large other parts of trade unions, including ones which share communities' politics, mm. that community is not a proper trade union uh, because so many of it, because they're just like, yeah, it's what remains of a steel union with an insurance scheme attached. Okay, so uh, let's put that aside. So, uh, Lemon head of one, one of Britain's, one of the contenders for Britain's largest trade union, and somebody who's extremely well connected with the Labour leadership. So, his chief of staff, Andrew Murray, is on secondment a day and a half a week to the leader's office. It's a former Unite political director who's now got the party, who's taken Ian McNichol's old job. Carrie Murphy, who is kind of the gatekeeper of Jeremy Corbyn, is a very close ally of Lemma McCluskey's. So he's got somebody with, and Unite, let's not forget, was the single biggest donor to Labour at the last election, right? So this is somebody who is absolutely, 
he's rejected the role, the label of kingmaker, but he is incredibly key to the Corbyn project and its continued success. And he's written a fairly jaw-dropping piece, actually, because it's not one of those boring politician op-eds where you have to try and go, ah, what he said is X, but what he means must be Y. No, 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 he's just said what he means. And he said that... You know, there are anti-Semites in Labour and he's somebody who's fought, he said, physically fought sometimes against anti-Semitism, but that he also believes that it is being weaponised. And he's named some of the MPs that he thinks are using it, you know, have taken up the cudgels with particular glee because they are innately opposed to Corbyn and said that the trouble is when you criticise Corbyn on absolutely everything, then even when you raise serious issues that are real issues you kind of it kind of gets into this morass of swamp of just generalized anti-corbyn bile i think that's a fair summation of his views yeah and then he kind of adds by going look i don't like these elections but but you people are, are very, for a bruising yeah. is all i'm saying but he says that, but that's an argument that's very hard to make within my trade union now when you read it what were your initial reactions surprise uh, i think so i'm about to say several things i'm aware are incredibly deeply contradictory right Okay. In the, I do not think any of the arguments in it are necessarily untrue. Mm-hmm. The reason why Labour has been incubating this problem for a long period of time is MPs have not been willing to upset the apple cart by going, my God, we do turn a blind eye to an awful lot of anti-Semitism on the, on the left, up until the point where they did not like the Labour leader anyway, and they kind of went, well, I see no reason to bite my tongue anymore. And I think you made the point in one of your columns that there are MPs who, you know, knowing that they are in a minority of members and being quite sceptical about Corbyn, permit themselves one or two issues that they uh, they criticise him on, rather yeah. than trying to, you know, just be out, up in his grill every single day, whether that might be Brexit or something like this. Yeah, and I think it is certainly true that were I advising Corbyn sceptic Labour MPs, I would say I do not think it is that helpful to lasting action to expel anti-Semites from the Labour Party to also be complaining about Jeremy's actually entirely irrelevant opinions about the Scripple poisoning, right? That is going to be successfully opposed by like the right-wing press and mm. by conservatives. It actually, I don't think, does Labour MPs any good. However, I think the, the kind of missing thing and the, the reason why I think the piece... And obviously, I think it's important for us to hold debate within the within the the broad left. My personal and immediate reaction was, where is the bit where Len McCluskey explicitly apologised for the several comments he has made in the past, suggesting not only that um, this problem was being weaponised, which is one thing, although it is one of those things where I can't remember, oh, there was some kind of other thing where the conserv- some conservatives said, oh, we're being attacked for, and then maybe it was Windrush, and it's like, you know, my new PR consultancy for a billion pounds will tell you the brilliant trick not to be attacked for... Don't depo- do stupid things. Yeah don't, yeah, don't do it. But yeah, he, he did describe it as mood music, and Unite did back the counter-demonstration mm. against the, the demonstration. So it's one of those things where... The argument he makes that, you know, look, Labour MPs are not going to get a hearing on this if it seems like it is just, you know, the thing they have chosen to complain about Corbyn today. I just think that argument would feel a lot more genuine if it came from a union which hadn't got a record of being quite weak on this in recent times for political reasons. I also, I mean, it's one of those things where it is spectacularly unhelpful for uh, the Labour Party which has already had a difficult week after an inconclusive meeting with the leaders of the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council, for it to him to kind of then 
because that will fuel the fear that Labour does not take it that Reignite seriously. Reignite it. On a scale of one to Nick Timothy randomly bringing up the go-home vans after no one was talking about them, how unhelpful would you say it was? Um, so I actually think I would only give it a four because it's unhelpfulness. If the meeting had gone better uh, with JLC and the Board of Deputies, then it, then it looks very different. It becomes unhelpful because of things which happened elsewhere. Now, the interesting thing about that meeting, which uh, there's a write-up of what occurred in the Jewish Chronicle. I've spoken to several people about what went on in the, the meeting. Now, do I personally kind of think that there is a strand and is well represented within the leadership leader's office that is quite happy to kick this problem into one of process? Yes. However, equally, the Labour Party is a hugely process-bound institution. So I do think it is hard at this point in time to say with any certainty whether or not the things that were heard as bearing in processology are Labour starting to take it seriously and to act very quickly. Or, I mean, for example, to give you an idea of how appallingly slowly Labour moves everything. I don't know if you've noticed, but they finally started doing those very good press releases that the Conservatives do, where when the other side makes a gaffe, they go, Labour statement on this, and they go, Mm. Baroness Varsi has compared Theresa May to Enoch Powell. She did it on this interview. She said it at this time. Here is her full quote. Here is a quote from Dawn Butler saying that this quote is right. Proper opposition research, right? But that is something that I know that People in the Corbyn project, when they arrived in that press office, said, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to change it. And that kind of docket of we will improve this press release has kind of finally now ended up in the the thing. So what I admired about the, that piece is it comes back to what we were saying in the first section where somebody sort of will swear blind that they're not doing the thing that they're doing. Mm. I think it's good and good for Labour that Len McCluskey airs his clearly deeply held private views publicly. So you can contest them, you can discuss them, you can disagree with them or agree with them, but at least you know what they are, right? And I think what I'm very, you know, what has happened with a lot of this is it's been conducted through a kind of series of subtweets and that makes it hard to cover and hard to unpick. And actually what's, I think, yeah, admirable about the way that he's done it, I think it is quite, comes off as quite menacing, but that's because he's saying things that are like deselections that will be heard as being menacing. Like it's not, it's not camouflaged. Like he is quite clear about what he thinks should happen, that he thinks people should face the consequences, that he thinks Corbyn has now earned the right to be in total control of the party. And you can now deal with that as a fact that exists. Yeah, and I think that it is useful that there can now be no disputing that parts of the Corbynite project do regard people getting upset about anti-Semitism as bad faith. That's now been said explicitly, and that can now be... Um, yeah, and you can disagree with it or agree with it, but at least you can. You don't have to hedge around people doing the kind of dance of the seven veils about what they actually believe. Yeah, I mean, I think it does mean that running store will continue, and I think it does create further pressure for Labour MPs who find it deeply morally upsetting that this is going on, for it to be treated and described in that way. Yeah, that's true. Well, I no doubt we'll return to this subject in future podcasts. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Indeed. Hey, uh, I uh, listened to the whole of the Marshall Mathers LP while driving to and from Oxfordshire this weekend. And let me tell you, I can't believe that we ever listened. I mean, you probably didn't. You were probably a fetus. But 
Today's kids do not know they're born. That is the most offensive album I've ever listened to. But I think it's really important if you want to understand the alt-right, like all of the alt-right memes, like listen to Stan. Stan is basically the alt-right in a song. Sorry, this was a diversion just from the fact that people were mean about my rapping. I mean, fair. I mean, it was terrible. So I like the Marshall Matters LP from a musical perspective. Obviously, the sentiments in it, I agree, are as you describe. And it is one of those things which <laughs> boggling, you listen to it now boggling, and like, you're just like... 30 minutes of blowjob noises and then just him just going, I'm going to kill all fags for like minutes on end. It's just a start, like, it's, um, yeah, boggling. Yeah. The other thing I... So there are two things about it I don't like. One is what the actual lyrics say. The second is I blame the Marshall Mathers LP for... I mean, it really has a disproportionately high number of skits on it. Too many skits. Taylor Swift, I think, is the direct inheritor of the dull Eminem skit. And it's, I don't care about your conversation with your agent. Just write a song. Yeah, I mean, actually, so is um, Gang Signs and Prayer, Stormzy's song, Mm. which is a great record. But why? I just, you know, I just, why? Who who is the person who goes, do you know what I love about this record? The weird bits where... The artist just talks to... It. And actually, Outcast, the Love Below slash Speaker Box is afflicted by this as well. It's got several very boring skits on it. And the problem is now the way that I listen to music, obviously you just put it on shuffle, right? And therefore you just spend a lot of time hammering... I spend a lot of time hammering the button when it goes, Behold, a lady! And you're like, oh, not this bit again, lads. Although on the subject of beholding a lady... <laughs> you, uh, Oh my God, that was brilliant. <laughs> you were given an invite to... Uh, Pretty cool event uh, in Parliament this week. Square this week. Yeah, so um, the unveiling of the statue of Millicent Garrett Fawcett in uh, Parliament Square. The first woman joins eleven men, and the first statue in Parliament Square by a woman as well, by Gillian Waring. It was campaigned for by my friend Caroline Crowley Perez. Shout out, who was I know is a podcast listener, so she'll appreciate this. She's probably on a run right now. And it was back, I mean, it was back, really, Danny Finkelstein was very instrumental in in the campaign, as was Sadiq Khan, who picked it up on his first day in the mayoralty. And then, obviously, because this is a politics thing, then Theresa May was very keen to turn up and remind us that she, too, is a woman. So she gave a speech, too. But actually, I was really surprised how moving I found it, because I just think it's one of those things where until you just... And I thought you did a tweet about being a diversity event, right? And it was just everyone there was black or Asian and being like, how little you expect this to be the, the sea of faces that you look at when you arrive at a thing in Parliament. And it's so true because it's it, because it's wallpaper, you just don't notice it. And because male statues are wallpaper, you just don't notice it. And you just think, well, actually, do you know what? I think there's a huge amount of women have done stuff during history. And the fact that it hasn't been celebrated is really, really appalling. I've just been, I've just written a piece about women writers and it's really fascinating to see the way that they just drop out of the canon. There's a bit where Jane Austen's writing Sense and Sensibility and she says she doesn't want to read this book by this other woman writer because she's worried it's going to be too clever and it's going to make her feel bad about Sense and Sensibility. And that woman's novels have just been lost, gone, completely gone. And there's so many... I've been, as you may know, working on this book about feminism. <sighs> out soon in all the books. Oh, no, out, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, in an existential sense, everything is out soon, right? <laughs> Out before the the heat death of the universe in all good bookshops. Um, But I had no idea about the... If you start researching researching the people around um, Millicent Garrett, you know, Emily Davis, um, the Kensington ladies, there were this group of Victorian social reformers and the stuff they were into is quite bang on, right? They were quite a lot of them were vegetarians. They were anti-vivisectionists. You know, they were into anti-colonialism, Irish home rule. And the vegetarian is one that, was, that keeps coming back again. Um, and well, I think it's one of those things where I think whenever someone goes, what is the thing that you feel history will most sharply judge you for? And it's like, well, this quite carbon intensive, eating in many ways, quite cruel. Eating delicious pigs that are really intelligent. Yeah, just thing that I cannot remotely 
defend. And because occasionally I've started to get, I, I've decided I won't eat octopuses because they can open jars. They're properly smart and they can hold grudges, which to me is the ultimate <laughs> sign of sentience. Uh, so you also wouldn't eat Gordon Brown, is what you're saying? Yeah. And this is the thing: is once you've accepted the central point, then you would not eat an octopus or Gordon Brown. What is the what is my moral defence for doing something I know is bad for the planet to pigs, which are quite clever? And the answer is, well, I've now eaten so much bacon that I feel I might as well. I am carry... so steeped in blood that yeah, yeah like you're like Macbeth, you might as well yeah keep wading into it. Yeah, I th- I agree with you. I think eating meat is ultimately indefensible, but but, but delicious. But the actual question I was going to ask you is yes. Obviously, the the Fawcett statue is great. If you could have one other statue, what would be your next statue? Do you know what the thing is? I was thinking about this, and it's really tough because so many of the women that I have a huge admiration for. We almost don't, we don't know what they look like. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about it. So there's the tomb of Aphra Ben in Westminster Abbey, obviously the first woman writer to make a living from writing. But there's only one sort of vague portrait of her. So doing a statue would be quite tough. I've got a sneaking affection for um, Jaban Desai, who, uh, who's just been the subject of Great Lives podcast, actually, by um, a friend of the podcast, Aisha Hazarika, who led the Grunwick strike. And just, I think what I like about her story is it's a pretty ordinary story. She's not somebody who dedicated her entire life to one cause, but somebody who just saw something that they didn't like and sort of stood up for it. So I wouldn't mind, and one of the things I like about the Fawcett statue is it's got 59 portraits around the base of other people involved in the suffrage fight. There has been a teensy bit of airbrushing. Some of the more obvious fascists have been quietly, <laughs> quietly. Uh, Nora Dacre Lamb, I don't think, is on there. And who's the other one? that uh, There was another one who I've got a sneaking love of uh, who's made her friends call her Robert. Uh, and liked to dress in police uniforms and then inveigled herself into being head of women's police and then became a proper full-on fascist. So you think, actually, was she concerned about police reform or did she just really like the uniforms? Uh, she's not on there. And there are some men on the base as well, including my um, bay, uh, Fred Pevick Lawrence, who, was, who, along with his wife, Emmeline, did a lot of funding of the Women's Social Political Union. Inevitably fell out with the Pankhursts because everyone fell out with the Pankhursts. But I wouldn't, yeah, I would. so I would like a statue of, of, of Afro Ben. Uh, and there's a great line from Virginia Woolf that's something like, you know, all women should let flowers fall on the grave of Afra Ben for it was she who gave them their voice. I've misquoted that, but it's like the idea is that actually the idea that writing is a is a plausible trade for a woman began with her. Who would you have? So I don't really know why having introduced the question I didn't use any of that time to think of an answer. But um so this is this is an answer which I, I feel I'm not gonna be able to successfully defend when anyone asks me about it online. But I was on the Westminster Hour this week and there was this discussion about whether or not there should be a Thatcher statue. And obviously because you're there as the kind of colour commentator is when you're the journalist, you won't get elected with defending like that, Jeff. Um, but I'd be fine with a Thatcher statue. Like, well, actually, I have this... She's not my, te- she's not my taste, but she is, like, she is a landmark. I don't have any problem with the, that. The thing I kind of suddenly realised... a Gandhi statue and he's, is, you know... Is, is the... I mean, I don't even think you have to go as far as sort of Gandhi, right? Like, let's say Walpole, I mean, Gandhi right? did great things, also some very shady personal things. That was yeah. my Gandhi point, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that almost everybody, if you look around that, sta- that, that there were probably things we... Well, the, the thing I basically... So my instinct was actually, say, David Blunkett, right? The first disabled man, I believe, to be a Secretary of State and certainly the first to hold one of the great offices. And the, the reason why I was... And the thing I was thinking about the Thatcher statue is... If, if I said, look, we should take down this Walpole statue because, you know, the guy did a lot of bad things, you know, the mail would write about how I was ungrateful, it would go on for ages and ages, yada, yada. I suddenly realised, I realised, I kind of feel that the case for a statue, to me at least, is a lot more simple than 
you know, she successfully did lots of things with which I disagree, which was kind of the point Stuart Wood made. It was kind of like, actually, I realise I'm sort of into marking firsts, partly because otherwise they just get forgotten. Also, they're, more, they're usually a lot more recent than people would like to think. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I'm, I've been doing some stuff about the first women to enter universities, you know, Cambridge... University didn't award women degrees until 1948, but the first, you know, the first women to the first woman to have a degree, Millicent Fawcett's sister, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, was the first woman who was known to be a woman to be qualify as a surgeon um, in in Britain. I think that kind of stuff. If there's somebody now, we know the name of the first female prison governor. You know, those kind of things I think are really important. Blunkett, I think, is a really good shout because he just somebody who and and I don't I. Yeah, he just he overcame an enormous amount. I think that if you look at the statistics for people with visual impairments about how many of them are unemployed, like it's a really difficult thing. The world is very much, you know, the, the social model of disability, the world is really not built for people who can't say skim read. Like and being a minister particularly, that's a you know, that's a, a big thing that would, could hold you back. Ellen Wilkinson is someone else who's on the base of the Millicent Fawcett statue. Oh, who Attlee treated terribly. Again, another problematic fave. I've been reading the um, autobiography of Barbara Castle. Uh, I'm quite... I mean, seatbelts. I mean, seatbelts, right? Like, I mean, yeah, she did... I mean, don't tell John that you like Barbara Castle. I mean, he will come at you with a beaching axe. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. in terms of this is the thing is um, and, I, and this is partly what my book is about is about the fact that we have a particular problem writing women's history because most of the people who did something good also did something terrible. Like Mary Stopes, great contribution to um, birth oh God, control. She wasn't a fascist, was she? She was a eugenicist. She wouldn't let. She didn't want her son to marry a woman who was. This is pro. This is like galaxy brain eugenics. Who was short sighted. It wasn't even a racial thing. She just thought that short-sighted people were <laughs> affecting the gene pool. Whoa. That's commitment to eugenics. Yeah, I mean... That other eugenicists probably went, mm, Marie. Yeah, that's... all the other eugenicists were just imitating. And <laughs> so we, be- we end where we began. <laughs> been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not sign up for Morning Call? Why not treat yourself? Get Stephen before 10am in your inbox every morning telling you what to think about the stories of the day. Simply Google Stephen Bush Morning Call. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com listen.